Good morning. Hey again, church. Hey, great to see you. Uh, my name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors here in North Ave. Good morning. Online campus, good morning to you. And Essex, good morning to you. Uh, I don't know about you, but I spent this week rejoicing. This was a week of rejoicing. Uh, I think it was Wednesday around 8.30 a.m. <laughs> that my wife and I were standing in our house and there was nobody coming, needing something, no you know, child running through the room, jumping onto the couch, none of us saying, stop that, stop that. It was quiet, it was peaceful. I didn't know what to do other than just say, thank you, Jesus, my kids are back at school. I am, I am so grateful, and uh, I know many of you are feeling that as well. And uh, many of you also, families are, are homeschooling, and you know, I don't know how you do that, but props to you, I mean, that's awesome. So uh, we're gonna start our service today. I just wanna take a minute. Kids are back at school. College students are back. I think UVM starts classes tomorrow. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, that time of year, right? The end of August, beginning of September. So I want to take a minute now and just uh, come before the Lord in prayer and lift up our kids and our students as they start school uh, this last week. And then they jump in again this week for their first full week. So church, would you pray with me as we uh, just pray for our students and our kids? Um, God, we are thankful for our, our young ones for our kids, for our students, for our college students, and just the joy they bring to our families, to our community, to our lives. And uh, Lord, we pray as they are kicking off a new school year, God, would they grow, would they learn, would they have fun, make new friends, and just have a really wonderful, sweet time this year. We pray it would also be a safe time. Lord, keep them safe. We know there's a lot of anxiety right now as things are starting to bubble up again, but Lord, we know that you also are sovereign, and so we come to you and say, please keep them safe. Keep them happy. Keep our families healthy. And Lord, would this year be a great year and one to remember uh, <laughs> for different reasons than last school year was. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. Amen. Well, it is good to be with you. Before we jump into today's message, I just want to have two quick things that I want to remind you of and tell you about. Rachel touched on them, but I want to just reiterate them. Number one is we are just a few weeks away from corn roast returning. I know. I am very much looking forward to corn roast this year. You know, last year we did the grab some corn and do corn roast on your own, and that was fine, right? That was all right. But there's nothing like corn roast in person, that giant bonfire being together and all that. So uh, September 11th, Saturday at Chamberlain Farm. We're going to be there. But what I really want to say is we can't make this massive event happen without help. We need your help to pull this off. Volunteers picking corn, roasting corn, tons of other stuff that we need to do to pull this thing off. And uh, I also want to say to you, and this isn't, you know, I'm not trying to leverage you in this, but I want to say serving, volunteering, especially at a big fun event like Corn Roast is a really great way to just get to know people, to hang out, and to have fun on that side of things. I know for me, volunteering at big events like this when I was younger really helped plug me into the church and grow my faith and, and to meet people like maybe I wouldn't have met otherwise. So I really encourage you, not just for the sake of corn roast, but for the sake of you, would you consider plugging in? Go on Church Center, you'll find the volunteer page there, tons of opportunities to serve at corn roast. We'd love to have you there. It's going to be a great day uh, to be there and to serve, to volunteer. It really is a really wonderful event. So please, thank you for considering uh, plugging in on that. So that's number one. Number two is... 
September 19th, we've talked about it, is our back to church weekend, food trucks at both of our campuses, all that fun stuff. What I want to tell you about, though, is this little guy right here. Out in the lobby at both of our campuses in Burlington and here in Essex, we have some stacks of these cards. They say, I have a question on the front, and there's some words on the back. I'm not going to read what it says on the back to you, but there's some stuff on the back. This is an invite card. For you to grab a few of these, hand them to your neighbors and to your friends and say like, hey, we're kicking off a new sermon series called I Have a Question on September 19th. We're going to have food trucks and fun. Grab a few of these, give them to your friends, your neighbors and family members and say, hey, we'd love to see you there. This is what we're up to as a church. Come and just check it out and see what it's all about. So grab a few of these on your way out today, both campuses, and uh, make sure you get those into the hands of some people that you know could really come and enjoy being at church with us as we kick off the fall and kick off this new sermon series called I Have a Question, where Pastor Scott's going to tackle some big questions of of the faith and people have about the faith in our culture today. So grab some of those on your way out. Uh, All right. You know, last week we finished up this seven-week sermon series we were doing called What Does Jesus Have to Say to the Church? What Does He Have to Say to Me? Where we looked at these seven letters in the book of Revelation, right? Seven churches, the chapters two and three of Revelation. Finished that off last week. So we have a couple weeks right now where we're sort of in between summer series and fall teaching series. So we've got a couple weeks of sort of one-off Sundays where we're just going to be talking about some stuff that's on our hearts. And so today, there's not really a big reason for this other than uh, for the last few weeks, we've been towards the end of the Bible. And today I want to go towards the beginning of the Bible. So we're going to jump hundreds and hundreds of pages forward to Genesis chapter four, where we're going to be today uh, for our, our sermon, which we're calling Character and Grace. We're going to be looking at the story of Cain and Abel. And those names might ring a bell for some of you, Cain and Abel. And that's Genesis chapter four. Now, In Genesis chapters 2 and 3, Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapters 2 and 3, we find the story of Adam and Eve. They're the first humans God creates, Adam and Eve, and they live in this paradise called the Garden of Eden. And we're told that God walked with them, he talked with them, he was close with them, they knew God and God knew them very well. And Adam and Eve had the run of the place. They could eat from any tree they wanted, they could uh, hang out with the livestock and name them, except one stipulation, by the way, there's one tree, Adam and Eve, you can't eat from, the fruit of that tree, don't eat from that tree, God says. But, of course... They become curious, right? Get a little close to the tree. And then this serpent, this talking serpent, we're told, comes and sort of deceives Adam and Eve. And he says to Eve, he says, God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he knows when you eat that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. And so they eat the fruit, trying to become like him as they eat it disobeying him as they eat it. And there are consequences for their eating of this fruit that God told them don't eat. He banishes them from the Garden of Eden, and what we call sin is now a regular part of the human experience. We experience that today. Um, So that's sort of the backdrop as we come to Genesis chapter 4. So we're going to dive into the story of Cain and Abel. We're going to start in verse 1. We'll read a little bit, talk, and read a little bit, and talk as we go work our way through these these 16 or so verses of this story. So let's just go. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where the story starts like this. Adam made love to his wife Eve. We're not going to get more into that one. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. And we'll pause. Adam and Eve's sin, right, eating of that fruit, this is still pretty fresh. 
This only happened the chapter before. This is a pretty fresh experience. And when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, right, they essentially said to God, right, the serpent said, you'll become like God. They essentially said to him when they ate it, we know better. We don't need you. We can do this on our own. We can become like you. And that's, that's a pretty big deal, right? That's a pretty big deal. They don't deserve to be in God's presence anymore. They messed up in a pretty big way. Yet, when Eve gives birth to her first son, Cain, she says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. I gave birth to a son. And she attributes Cain's birth to the Lord's help. God's grace is bigger than Adam and Eve's mistakes. Yes, they sinned, and yes, there are consequences for that, but it appears that God is still present with them, helping them, even though they may not deserve it. And by God's grace, Eve gives birth to Cain, and then they have another son, and they name him Abel. Now, if you read the Old Testament carefully, especially the Old Testament, you'll find that names mean something. The names of characters in the Old Testament often reveal something about that character or about the story that they're involved in. Um, The character of the character, we could say. Uh, For example, Jacob, he comes a few chapters later in Genesis. His name means heel grasper. When he was born, he was uh, holding on to the heel of his twin brother Esau. But this is also an idiom for liar or deceiver. And Jacob, if you know the story, deceives his brother Esau later in the story in Genesis. So it kind of gives us an insight into who he is. Names mean something. The Hebrew word Cain, Cain as it's pronounced, is, it means possession or a thing that is acquired, right? Something I have. Eve gives birth to him, gives birth to a son, acquiring him, having him, she says, with God's help. And she's thankful for that. And the name she's chosen, Cain, is a reminder to her of God's help. That without God's help and God's grace for her, Cain wouldn't be here. Cain's name is a reminder of that for Eve and for Adam. What about little brother Abel? Well, Abel comes from a Hebrew word that means breath or vapor or wind. It's something that comes and goes and dissipates quickly. It's not, it doesn't last long. And Abel, he doesn't last long in the Bible. (laughs) He's only here for these few verses. His life is fleeting. It is short. And his name reflects that. If you read the New Testament, Abel's brought up a few times, sort of talking about his lasting impact, which is kind of ironic given his name, but his, his life is short It comes and goes. It's fleeting. So we have uh, these two brothers. They're born to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. They're sons. They're the first people. They're the first sinners. And they're the first to experience God's grace. So let's read on in the story. We'll start in the second half of verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering. Fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on favor, uh, with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And we'll stop there. This is the first act of worship we have recorded in the Bible. This is the first act of worship. Uh, We don't know how Cain and Abel knew what to do or how to worship, but uh, they know to bring God some gifts, to bring him an offering. Now, 
I'm not a gift-oriented person. That's not how I'm wired. Uh, I know for a lot of you, a lot of people, receiving gifts and giving gifts is a big way you feel affection and show affection and love and appreciation and all that. You could say it's your love language maybe. And I'm just not oriented that way to, to, to view gifts that way. That's not how I am. Do I like gifts? Yeah, I really like gifts. Do I like giving gifts? Sure, sometimes I like giving gifts, but I'm not, I'm not wired or oriented that way. I think it's because growing up in my family, a lot of our birthdays and Christmas was like, hey, what do you want for your birthday? And say, I want this, and then I would get that thing, you know? And that's sort of, you know, that's not super fun, uh, but uh, unless, you know, it's like a new car, and then, yeah, mom, you can buy me a new car. That's fine, go ahead. Um, <laughs> my, my wife often tells me I'm no fun, and I'm a grump, and she's, she's very right about that, but, <laughs> but gifts just aren't my thing, really. Uh, but even I know that the giving and receiving of gifts is a way to show love and appreciation for someone. And I, I think that's a natural thing for humans, for us to give and receive gifts to show affection and appreciation. And it seems that this first family of humans didn't need to be told, hey, you want to show God how much you love him? You want to show God you appreciate him? Bring him some gifts. So that's what they do. Cain and Abel, they each bring an offering to God. This is good. Yeah, guys, good job. That's worship, and God is worthy of your worship. Good job. Cain, the farmer, he brings an offering from his crops. And Abel, the shepherd, brings an offering from his flocks. The firstborn, it says. But this doesn't go well for Cain. After they bring their offerings, verse 4, it says, let me read this again. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. God accepts Abel's offering, but does not accept Cain's offering. He rejects it. Why? Did he... Did, did he do something wrong? Was the offering not good enough? Why did the Lord not accept Cain's offering? Well, there's sort of four thoughts as to why the Lord would not accept Cain's offering. Four, well, maybe we'll call them theories, what people think led to this moment of the Lord rejecting Cain's offering. So four things, four possibilities. Number one, God rejected Cain's offering because it's God's choice and he's God and he can do what he wants, right? He's king, he's sovereign, he's lord of everything, and he simply chose Abel over Cain. He's God, he gets to decide those sorts of things. Who are we to question him? That's number one. Number two, why did Cain's uh, offering get rejected? Uh, well, he didn't bring a, a blood sacrifice. He didn't bring a blood sacrifice like his brother Abel. Cain brought his harvest, some produce from his crops, while Abel brought the, it says, the fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. So he sacrificed, he killed the firstborn, the choicest of his new animals. And a blood sacrifice is greater than a, we'll call it a grain offering because maybe it costs more monetarily and something had to die for it to happen. So it's got a greater value attributed to it, making it a greater sacrifice. So that's sort of the second thing people think. Third thing people think about why Cain's offering was rejected is because maybe Cain's offering was a, of a poor quality. We're told in these verses... Abel brought the firstborn of his flocks, the firstborn, the new ones, the choicest, the, the best. These verses don't tell us that Cain brought the best from his harvest. So Cain's offering must be a lesser quality. 
And the fourth uh, thing people think is maybe Cain had a bad attitude. Abel had a good attitude, but Cain had a bad attitude. He didn't offer his gift with a thankful and full heart towards God. So that's sort of four, four major theories, we'll call them. People think about why Cain's offering was rejected. Well, a few things I think that are worth noting as we consider this question as to why Cain's, was, why Cain's offering was rejected. So just three things I want to point out as we kind of think through this together. Number one is that both offerings, both a offering from uh, the crops, again, we'll call it a grain offering, and a, an animal offering, a blood sacrifice, both of those are totally acceptable forms of offerings. The brothers worked in these different occupations, right? Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer and each brought a gift out of their livelihood, something they worked hard for to produce. Not to mention that later in the Old Testament, in the law, both types of offerings are, uh, are approved as good and right offerings to bring to God. So there's no real reason we should think a blood sacrifice in this context holds a higher place than a grain uh, offering would. Uh, second thing to consider is we're also not told anything about the quality of Cain's offering. Yes, we are told Abel brought the firstborn from his flocks, and we're not told that Cain brought the firstfruits of his, his harvest, but we are also not told he didn't do that. <laughs> Hope you followed my sentence there. We shouldn't assume that Cain didn't bring his best just because it doesn't say that he did. It also doesn't say he didn't. That would be us reading too much into the words of Scripture, assuming too much. And when we do that, we can kind of get into a bad place as we read the words of Scripture. Uh, number three thing to consider is this, that the Hebrew word in these, in these verses of Cain and Abel, translated as offering, is this word minha. This word minha is never used in the Old Testament to talk about a blood sacrifice at the temple. A blood sacrifice is used to atone for sins, and the blood would cover the cost of your sins. A minha is not a sacrifice meant to atone. It's an offering or gift given to someone or to a deity like the one true God, an offering or gift to show gratitude for something, or to prove your allegiance to someone. It's totally appropriate for Cain to have brought this gift from his harvest. I don't think the problem with Cain's offering is the offering. He was worshiping the one true God. He's not worshiping some idol. He brought an offering like his brother Abel. It was costly to him. He worked for it. He had to produce it, and he brought it to show his love for God. If I'm Cain now, I'm feeling frustrated and probably a little confused, right? We're told in our, our story that Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. It was downcast, which might make you think he was sad, right? It's sort of a posture of sadness. But what this really means is he intentionally turned his face away from the Lord. He was angry. I can't even look at you, God. Turned his face away from him. Frustrated, rejected. He can't even look at him. So why did God reject Cain's offering? Let's go to verses 6 and 7. We'll read on. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. 
There was nothing wrong with Cain's offering. It was not rejected because the offering was wrong. Cain's offering was rejected because of Cain. God says to Cain here in these verses, he says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted, right? You do what's right, you're going to be accepted. If you don't do what's right, sin's crouching at your door. And God's not talking about the rightness of the offering. He's talking about the rightness of Cain. Here's Proverbs 21, 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is detestable. How much more so when brought with evil intent? There is something about Cain, something in his character that gives God cause to say to him, no thanks, Cain, we got to work on some stuff before I can accept this. And even though he brought a technically acceptable offering, Cain brought it in poor spirit and with poor character. In life and in faith, character matters. Character matters. Not just what you do, but who you are, the, the manner in which you do things, your attitude, your disposition, beyond your actions, it, it matters. Character matters. You know, we, we like to place a lot of emphasis on productivity, right? What did you accomplish? But how often do we really care about how that thing was accomplished, the manner in which it was accomplished? And, th and this happens a lot in churches I see it all the time with friends and in their churches that they're in or just in the news and stuff. There's countless stories of churches and leaders who do some pretty shady stuff. And when people involved in those situations look back and I, you hear things like, yeah, you know, that was bad, but look at all the fruit. Yeah, that guy was abusive, but look how many people were baptized. The ends, we try to use the ends to justify the means. And I just have trouble with that kind of thinking. I really, I don't believe that the ends justify the means. Especially in the church, especially in ministry. God doesn't call us, his people, to be producers that get the best result no matter the cost to our conscience or the damage of, that we might do to other people. He calls us to be his children and to embody his character and his spirit in the world for the sake of the world. Character matters. Character matters. It really matters to God. How we do things might be more important than what it is we do. Here's Psalm 51, 16 and 17. And the psalmist, he says this to God. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, my sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. The thing that matters most to God is, it's not the offering, it's the heart of the person who brings it. It's not the thing we do, it's how we do it. Our character and our attitude, it, it matters. Cain brought an offering, but the Lord did not delight in it because he did not delight in Cain. His character matters to God, and I think it should matter to us. Let me read verse 7 again here, where the Lord says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Your character 
can be a shield or it can be a slide. Your character, good character, can be a shield to help protect you against sin, to help protect you against temptation and, and desire for evil. Poor character, on the other hand, can be a slide, a slippery slope that draws us further away from God and what he has for us. Now, the Bible doesn't give a single comprehensive definition to good and bad character, but it has it sprinkled throughout, sort of implicit as we go. But I think these verses in Galatians 5 can sort of help us as we think about this. Um, in Galatians 5, Paul, the apostle, he's, he's contrasting some terms, what he calls, on one hand, the works of the flesh. That's kind of what our sinful nature produces in us, is poor character. And he contrasts that with what he calls the fruit of the Spirit, uh, what God's Spirit produces in us, and what's, what good character looks like. So he contrasts these things. And in verse 19, he starts by saying this. The works of the flesh are obvious. He's going to list a lot of things. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, and drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. I warn you, he says, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Poor character is selfish. It looks for what can be gained. It's lustful and jealous and angry. And when we live in poor character... It's easy to say yes to sin because it's selfish. It doesn't consider the impact it might have beyond ourselves, the impact on others and the impact it might have on God. And then he contrasts this. Paul goes on here in verse 22 with the fruit of the Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's good character. It's loving, it's humble, it's, it's patient. And when we live, live in, in good character, it, we pause and think twice about whether or not we should. More readily consider how our choices and actions might impact others, might lead us astray from God's call in our lives. It can be a shield or a slide. Cain's character is poor. It's caused God to reject his offering. And, and Cain's response back to God in verse 5, his anger, his turning his face away from God, he doesn't want to hear it, I can't look at you, that proves where he's at. It proves his poor character. And that's causing him to separate further from God. And he's on that slide, the slide towards sin, which has been waiting for the opportunity. Let's read verse 8 now. We'll go on. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. He slid right into the jaws of sin. This is what 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 says. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. 
Now, it doesn't take a lot for us to look a little bit like Cain, you know? It doesn't take a lot. Often our flaws or our poor points of character, whatever you want to call them, they get exposed when we bump up against someone who is, excels in that area, whether it's what they do or who they are. Our shortcomings, our flaws get exposed in the light of someone who's better at those things than we, excuse me, than we are. And often, instead of dealing with it properly, right, asking, well, okay, what can I do better? How can I grow? God, help me, you know, as we, I go through this process. Instead of doing that, we either separate from that person because we, we don't want to get exposed anymore, right? And we want to hide so we don't feel bad about ourselves. We either do that or we do a little bit of maybe character assassination, right? Try to point out some flaws and some shortcomings that they have so we don't look so bad or feel so bad standing next to them. Now, typically you're not going to kill that person, I hope. But again, we might take part in a little character assassination, even if it's just in our own hearts. Poor character is a slippery slope that way, right? And for, in the point in First John about Cain is that people of good character don't do that. Cain did that, but we should not be like Cain. Good character celebrates the success of others. It rejoices in their goodness. And I got to tell you, I have trouble with this one. And I know you have trouble with this one too, because I have trouble with it, you know, and we're on the same boat here. We have trouble with this one. You know, when I see someone who does what I do better than me, you know, especially someone who speaks or preaches, you know, and, and is up on stage a lot, uh, I get that little thing in my gut, the little grinding thing, and that jealousy thing starts to rise up a little bit, and I start comparing or looking for flaws or thinking, oh, I would have said it differently. I would have done it this way. And, and thankfully, somehow, I always find myself being reminded, whether it's my own brain that kicks in or the Holy Spirit, which overwhelms me and reminds me that I'm just me. I'm just me. Be humble. Learn and grow and be thankful. God often tells me, be thankful there are much better preachers than you out there. Because if I was the gold standard for preaching, I think we'd all be in a lot of trouble. There are much better communicators out there. And I rejoice in that most of the time. Cain, being of poor character, couldn't take seeing his brother succeed where he failed. So he killed him. He killed him. Let's go on. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Sounds defensive. And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, Cain, now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. God can't let sin go without consequence. So Cain will have to deal with the consequences. Cain's punishment here is twofold. Number one, he will no longer be able to farm. Number two, he will have no place to call home. He will wander the rest of his days. Cain's loss of farming is the end of his usefulness, right? He was a farmer. He worked the earth. He grew crops. His purpose, his contribution to his family, his uh, means of earning, no more. It's gone, taken from him. Abel's blood spilled into the dirt. And when Cain killed Abel, he stained the very thing his livelihood came from. How How could the ground possibly be good for him anymore? 
How could he be trusted to look after the earth? The ground could no longer be good for him. He poisoned it with his brother's blood. And as a consequence, God takes the ground away from Cain, but really Cain took it away from himself. The loss of his purpose, his usefulness, and his ability to care for himself. He will now wander the earth. His survival will be dependent on what he can forage or steal or beg, dependent on others for survival. Sin, that's a big scary word, but sin does have consequences. What we do, our attitudes, our actions, it has, a, it has an impact. It has an impact on people. It impacts God. But sin also has sort of an indirect impact on us. So often, our shortcomings, our sins, they reverberate back on us. It has that effect. And we suffer consequences of our sins without realizing it could happen. You know, I see this a lot with people as we talk through situations in life and what's going on and okay, tell me what's happening and we talk through it and I, you know, more often than not, I realize, oh, this is what you're experiencing is a result of, of something that's reverberating back on you. That's what God says to Cain in verse seven is so true. He says, if you, don't do what's, if you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And that's, that's why character matters, right? Because sin is real and the, the results and consequences of sin are real Then they hurt. Whether we intend them or not, they hurt and, and sin is crouching at the door, crouching at the door, waiting to jump through the slightest crack. And once it's cracked, it's real easy for that door to be flung wide open. Sin can crush you. It can crush you, not just, not just others. And it often starts with those little cracks in our character. That moment of selfishness, right? That split second of indifference. That quick thought that runs through your head, right? You deserve it. No one will know. Sin is crouching at the door, God says. It desires to rule you. But you, he says, you must rule it. Character matters because it's a tool. It's a tool to help you rule over it. A tool that helps you pause. To say no and to keep that door closed. Let's, uh, let's finish up Cain's story in verse 13 through 16. The Lord just handed out this consequence to Cain. And then it says, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment's more than I can bear. Today, you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You know, it didn't have to go this way for Cain. This didn't have to be how his story went. There are moments along the way, right, if Cain had shown a little better character, he could have avoided getting to this place. And even here, right, even right now, notice, notice that Cain isn't sorry. 
Oh, I wish I had never killed Abel. You're right, God. That was really wrong of me to do. No, he doesn't say that. He's, he's very eye-focused. How could I possibly bear the consequences of my sins, right? I'll wander the earth the rest of my life. Like, how can I do this? He's still concerned about himself. And honestly, the consequences he's dealing with, they're, they're much lesser than he deserves. He deserves so much worse, but God's grace is bigger than Cain's mistake. Now, no one's sure what this mark that put, uh, God put on Cain is. As he sends him away, I'm going to put a mark on you, he says, so no one will kill you. We're not sure what that is. Could be a branding of some kind. We're not sure. What we do know is somehow Cain is under God's protection. Even though he's a murderer, murdered his brother, a sinner, bearing the consequence of his sin, God shows his grace for Cain. He protects him. And this mark is also God's grace for everybody else. Protection for anyone who might want to harm Cain. You know, he's going to be quite vulnerable. He's not going to have a place to live. Easy target. Violence, theft, bloodshed, whatever. That's outside of God's will for anyone, even if it's against the worst of us, even if it's against Cain. This mark protects everyone else from sinning by hurting Cain. God's grace is bigger than our mistakes. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say in my life, say to me something like, you know, if I walked into a church, I'd probably be struck by lightning. The church would just burn down if I ever walked in the front door, right? Sort of thinking, oh, I've been so bad at this point that if God ever noticed me, he would just, he would just kill me on the spot. There's no hope for me. I hear that a lot. And maybe you walked in today, and maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you're feeling that for yourself. Stop it. That is not our God. If you're thinking that, hear these words. God's grace is bigger. God's grace is bigger than any mistake. He has not given up on you no matter what you've done. God's grace is here for you. I find it interesting that God didn't take Cain's life. Cain took a life. Shouldn't he deserve death, right? Wouldn't that be justice, an eye for an eye? Should God have killed Cain? Well... If you go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, it says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's. You know, Abel's blood cries out from the ground for justice, right? I've been sinned against. Retribution, make it right. Jesus' blood shed on the cross, intentionally so, Jesus' blood speaks a better word. It speaks a word, forgiveness. It's a better word for you and for me. And it speaks that word not because it ignores these things. Abel's death is not ignored. In fact, in Matthew 23, Jesus says to the religious leaders that are arguing with him that something has to be done about the bloodshed of the innocent, starting with Abel's. It has to be reconciled and dealt with properly, Jesus says. Abel's death has to be reckoned and paid for. It can't be ignored. And this word of forgiveness that Jesus' blood speaks, 
It's better than retribution. It's forgiveness because Jesus' blood pays the price for Abel's blood. Jesus pays the price that Cain should have paid for his sin. Jesus also pays the price that you and I so often need to pay. You know, Cain was named for that, his name, when I think back, his, uh, that undeserved grace that Adam and Eve experienced when they sinned so magnificently against God. And now Cain, though he's wandering the earth, gets to experience the undeserved protecting grace of God the rest of his days. Sin, yes, has left a mark on his life, but so has God. He's protected and he's alive because one day Jesus would come and succeed where Adam and Eve failed. He would succeed where Cain failed and where you and I fail. And Jesus' blood speaks forgiveness. So, as you live in this word of forgiveness, remember too that your character matters. It can lead you towards sin like Cain. Or it can help protect you from it. But that's not what saves us. It helps along the way. It's God's grace. God's grace through Jesus Christ is bigger than our mistakes. You know, Romans chapter 5 says that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners... Jesus died for us. God's grace bigger than our mistakes. At one point, and maybe even now, we are all like Cain, hostile towards God, alienated from him, poor in character, sinful. And like it was for Cain, God's grace is for us, even though we don't really deserve it. God's grace is bigger. So whether you think of yourself as a person of good character or a person of poor character, I just want to say again, God's grace is for you. God's grace is for you. You have forgiveness through the better words spoken by the blood of Jesus. Don't let anything stand in the way of that. God's grace is for you. Uh, we're going to close in prayer in just one sec. So if you're sitting in this room, or if you're at North Avenue, or you're at home, as we pray, wherever you are, I want you to pray along with me here. Uh, you know, we're not going to pray some magical prayer, but we're going to take a second and pray an honest prayer, and that needs to be honest for you, where we, where we come to God, and, and we say, you know, I, God, I feel like Cain. I feel a little lost, a little hurt, a little angry, a little frustrated, a little whatever. I feel distant. I feel, I feel like I need you. We're going to pray that prayer in just a sec. I say to God, I want your grace. I need your grace. So maybe this would be your first time coming to God in that way, or maybe it's your millionth time. Either way, God's grace is for you. He made you, and he loves you. And he wants you to know him, and he wants you to know the grace he has for you. That's why Jesus came. And that's the word Jesus speaks. 
forgiveness because his grace is bigger than our mistakes. So wherever you are, church, at home, at North Avenue, here in this room, would you stand and we're going to pray as we close. And again, if, if you're feeling that way and you need to come to God, just pray along with me. Honestly, God's grace is for you. Let's pray. Gracious God, I need that better word, forgiveness. Forgiveness because my debt is paid by the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. A forgiveness I could not earn myself, but a forgiveness that you freely give as I come to you. Forgive me, God, for all the ways intended and unintended I've hurt others and I've, I've offended you, Lord. And help me in that to be a person that lives in good character, not selfish, but loving and patient and helpful. And Lord, would that good character be a shield in my life against sin as it crouches at the door. And even when I blow it, Lord, which I so often do, help me remember always that your grace is bigger than my mistakes. Thank you for everything. Send us out today in your grace, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen, church. God bless you. Great to see you today.